take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 12. This will be our last Lord's Day in chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Bulletin says I'm going to speak to you on uh, How Then Should We Live Part 3. But I gave that to Sue because I didn't have a title yet. Uh, I actually want to speak to you today on When They Do You Wrong. When They Do You Wrong. Romans chapter 12. Let's start reading in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege we have of uh, just gathering around your word right now. And I pray, first of all, that you'd fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to preach as I ought to. Uh, Forgive me for anything that would hinder my preaching. Help me, Lord, today to uh, just be clear and accurate and practical. May I say what needs to be said and be protected from saying anything I ought not. And then I pray you'd give us all ears to hear. Lord, this is your word. This is a hard passage. It's difficult for us to put into practice in our lives. We struggle with this, Lord. And so help us, I pray. And teach us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How about we close that door? Could we close that door? Thank you, Ken. Loud kids downstairs. I wonder how many of you have ever had somebody say something mean about you. Anybody ever had that happen? How many would raise their hand and say, yeah, I've had somebody say something mean about me? Looky there. I wonder how many of you have ever had somebody do something mean to you? Anybody? A few? A few? How many of you just had somebody just do something downright dirty and nasty to you? Anybody? My guess is that even the ones who have not raised their hands there would have to answer those questions in the affirmative. We all certainly seem to have had that happen. We've experienced unkindness or cruelty or some level of persecution. All of us. Most of us have experienced being lied about. Most of us have had people talk about us behind our back. We've been tricked. We've been betrayed. We've been hurt. Most of us, haven't we? Most of us have been wronged in some way or another. And most of us could say with conviction, yes, absolutely. I can think of at least one person who somewhere, sometime, might be a Christian, might be a non-Christian, doesn't matter. Somewhere, sometime, somebody has done me wrong. And I think it's that type of scenario that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in these last verses in chapter 12. He's describing for us here how a Christian should respond uh, to somebody else doing that. Somebody else being unkind. Somebody else uh, doing you wrong. And I think he gives us three primary truths here that I want us to think through. There's a couple of other things in this passage we could talk about, but we're going to concentrate on, I think, what is the main Uh, thought. And he says three things. He says, first of all, there's a wrong response when we are wronged. Secondly, he says there is a promised response when we are wronged. And thirdly, there is a right response when we are wronged. So let's try to divide it up that way and see if we can make sense out of this this morning. First of all, look at verse number 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Repay no one evil for evil. The first thing he teaches us here is that there is a wrong response When we are wronged. 
And I think this is the overriding theme of these few verses right here, really in, in that, that first phrase, repay no one evil for evil. I think what Paul is talking about throughout these few verses is vengeance, retaliation, how we treat others who treat us wrongly, who injure us, who hurt us, who slight us, who betray us, who abuse us. And I think the first thing he teaches us here is that vengeance is never what is right. Retaliation is never what is right. It's always wrong. And notice he makes that point twice here. He makes it there in verse 17. He also says it in verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. King David one time was very close to being guilty of vengeance. And he may have been at other times, but one, one particular one comes to mind, and that was when he was wronged by Nabal. Do you remember that story? He asked help of Nabal. Nabal told him to go pound sand, basically. And David was furious. And he mustered together his army of mighty men, and he went thundering toward the Nabal ranch with every intention of killing every single human being there. Until Abigail, Nabal's wife, got word of that, and she intercepted David. And she reminded him that vengeance would be something that he would regret the rest of his life, and he ought not to do it. And so he didn't. And here's what he said. He said this to her. He said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. He almost went down the wrong road. He almost had the wrong response to somebody doing him wrong. And I I believe Paul is clear here. Vengeance is always the wrong response. I know this flies against our nature. I know it flies against my nature. When somebody does me wrong... In my flesh, the first thing I think about is, you know, something like taking a ball bat up to the side of their head. That's my flesh. That's my tendency. It's most likely yours, too. Sinful men and women, as sinful men and women, we're wired, aren't we, to retaliate. And uh, the Bible teaches us here and everywhere that that's not the right response. Retaliation and vengeance are always wrong. Proverbs chapter 20 says, Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. First Thessalonians 5, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. First Peter 3, 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. And so the first thing we see here in Paul's teaching and throughout Scripture is that there is a wrong way to respond when someone has wronged us. And that wrong way to respond would be vengeance. It would be retaliation. It's never right. It's never right. Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. The second thing we see here is that there is a promised response when we are wronged. A promised response. Have you ever gone out and Googled, looked online, or any place else, to see just what kind of protection is around the President of the United States when he goes someplace. Have you ever read about that? I'm sure you've seen some things. I came across one example I wanted to share with you. And this was from just a couple years ago. This was President Obama, so it couldn't have been very long ago. But this was somebody from the Secret Service describing the protection that was around him in one particular motorcade as he was heading, I think, toward the Capitol. He says, here's what was there. First of all, there was a route car which generally had two police officers in it. The route car drives the route to check it visually up to five minutes prior to the president's movement. Secondly, there's a pilot car. Again, two more police officers. The pilot car drives the route a minute prior to ensure it is clear. 
Then there's a lead car, which also generally has two more police officers in it, who drives just ahead of the motorcade to clear the route at the time of movement. Then there are two president cars. One's a decoy, and the other contains the president. They're behind the lead car, and they have at least one Secret Service guard accompanying the president and maybe some others in there as well. There's a car they call the halfback, which follows closely thereafter. It's the primary support car loaded with at least four Secret Service agents and the usual weapons, including submachine guns for real firepower. Then there's a car that is full of electronic countermeasures and communications vehicles or communications equipment, which follows with a classified onboard team. This guy couldn't even tell us who's on that car. Two vehicles follow, known as support and control, bringing along support teams as well as a doctor and full med kit for emergency medical support. A vehicle follows that with a classified crew, again, can't tell us how many of those are, able to respond to chemical and other non-traditional weapons attacks and pollutants. Then there's the press vehicles, uh, manned by Secret Service agents and filled with press people. Then there's one called the Roadrunner which is a support vehicle containing communications relay and encryption support for secure global communications even on the move. There's an ambulance from the local area with a cleared medical crew. And then along the route, there are Secret Service agents deployed in vehicles, in buildings, on streets, in plain clothes to provide support and suppression of any attacks. It sounds like the president is fairly well protected, wouldn't you think, as he travels along? Would it surprise you to know that I believe the Bible teaches that you're protected far more? That God's secret service agents surround you far more than that little piddly bit that surrounds the president of the United States. I, I mentioned the story of Elisha, I think, just a couple of weeks ago, but I just love the story and I want to share it with you again this morning because it, it speaks to this. You recall that the king of Syria was trying to capture Elisha and he sent an army to get him. It says, then he, the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there to apprehend Elisha and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. I get the picture. Surrounding the city, not just surrounding Elisha. This was a big army. And Elisha's servant went out and saw it. And then he said to Elisha, he said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What a great verse that is. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's a glorious passage. It's wonderful to contemplate the truth that God is our protector, that he surrounds us with his armies, that we have more of his secret service agents around us than even the president of the United States. It's good stuff. But, you know, there's another truth here that we need to remember and that I think Paul speaks to in this passage. I think we need to remember, especially when we're wronged, especially when somebody, uh, when we're stewing about someone or something that uh, has done us wrong. You see, not only does God protect, Paul says God avenges. You see that there? God avenges one day, and it will not be long. God will make everything right. That's an amazing thing to contemplate. Notice what he says in verse number, uh, uh, well, where is it here? Verse number 19, I think. Oh, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That little phrase rendered give place to wrath in our New King James Bible is rendered another way. It's rendered leave it to the wrath of God in another translation. And in yet another one, it says leave room for the wrath of God. Paul says we can step aside 
We don't have to execute vengeance. We don't have to retaliate. God's already got that well in hand. We need to get out of his way and let him work. Some months back, we were having an elders meeting. And I can't remember what we were haranguing about in there. We were wrestling over some particular issue and uh, going back and forth and not fighting. I'm not saying that. We were just trying to figure out a, a correct solution to a particular problem. And, and Joshua was an elder at the time. And he sat quietly as all this haranguing was going on. And then finally he just spoke up and he said, Are we really not going to allow God to work here? And we all looked at each other like, We've been sitting here plotting and scheming and planning and thinking, but we haven't really thought about the fact we should just sit back and watch what God is going to do. And that's what Paul says here. He says, Leave room for the wrath of God. You know, my natural response, as I mentioned, whenever somebody does me wrong, is to leap and attack and retaliation. And, of course, it's wrong. But the fact that that is my natural response, and probably is your natural response, too, makes it hard to leave room for God. We get in the way. We jump up. We respond when we should just sit back and watch. We need to learn to trust God. And when we've been hurt and when we've been wronged, when we've been sinned against, when vengeance and retaliation is what we naturally want to engage in, we need to just stow that sinful impulse. And we need to say, Lord, I'm going to trust your promises. He promised and promises that he will make everything right. You know, Jesus is the very best example of this. Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What a perfect example. King David is another good example of this. When he, to all of our thinking, had every right to smash Saul off the face of the earth because of all the wrongs Saul had done to him, but he refused to do so. Refused to touch him. Refused to retaliate. Preferring instead to leave it to God. God promises to make things right. Over and over we see it. He said in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. And so he promises it. I love that wonderful old hymn. We sang some great hymns this morning. But I love that wonderful old hymn, This is My Father's World. There is a verse in that hymn that I think is one of the greatest that's ever been written. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. This is my Father's world. Should my heart be ever sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens reign. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Amen. There is a promised response when someone does us wrong. So there's a wrong response. There's a promised response. Let's notice the last thing. There's also a right response when we are wronged. And I think here he mentions that that right response is twofold. First of all, the right response when we are wronged is to strive, (coughs) strive for peace. And secondly, the right response is to uh, execute kindness, to bring kindness upon those who are doing you wrong. So let's notice those two things. First of all, the right response when we are wronged is to strive for peace. Look at verse number 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Another translation renders that, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Christians are to be a people of peace. 
in all things and in all ways and at all times. Romans fourteen nineteen. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Psalm 34, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Hebrews, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peter said, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So Paul's not saying anything new here, is he? He's not telling us anything that the Bible doesn't say in other places. We're to be a people of peace. But Paul says something interesting here, doesn't he? He says something that kind of makes us think a little bit. He says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So he seems to be giving us a loophole there, doesn't he? It's almost like there's a way out. He seems to be indicating there are times when peace is not possible, when peace is not attainable, and when peace is not even necessarily at those times the right response. I think Paul's argument here extends a little bit beyond the topic of vengeance now because he can't possibly be saying that there are times when vengeance is okay. That would, that would contradict too much of the rest of Scripture. He can't be saying that. He's not saying that. Vengeance, getting even, all, all paybacks, all that stuff, always wrong for a believer. We've already seen that. So this loophole is talking about something else. This loophole, I think, is talking about a broader topic, that of just being a peacemaker in general. I think he's talking about that and saying, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably. I know that there are some Christians, some believers, there may be some in this room this morning, who believe that the Christian response to violence is always passivity. Always. Always. No exceptions. Our Amish and Mennonite brothers would be an example of this. Uh, they often take the position that all war is evil. They often take the position that if somebody attacks them, they will not fight back, but will remain totally passive. Star Trek alert. I'm going to tell you a Star Trek story. For those of you who are visiting this morning, I happen to like Star Trek. And one of my favorite Star Trek episodes speaks to this very issue. So let me set the, ground, uh, the scene here a little bit. There was a particular episode where the starship Enterprise came upon a planet. And in this planet, the uh, planet had been completely and totally destroyed by some unknown agent. All life had been wiped out and the surface of the planet was barren and destroyed. And as they circled the planet, they discovered that was true except for one little two-acre square plot of ground where there was a man and a wife living. Their house was intact. Everything was perfect. It was intact. You've seen this episode, haven't you? It's a good episode. Well, we come to the end of the episode and we discover that this was not a man at all, that this particular person was some immortal being who had limitless power. And he had lived there with his wife on this planet for some time. And then this great attack had occurred. Because of his limitless power, he could have ended it with a thought. He could have ended it with a word. He could have wiped them out completely and saved everybody. But because he was a complete pacifist, he would not do that. He said, I will not kill. And as a result, even if millions of people died, he would stand there and allow it to happen, which is exactly what he did. Is that, is that what is the right response for a believer? Is that what the Bible teaches that we should do? Be completely passive no matter what? Should we never fight no matter the situation? We know vengeance after the fact is always wrong. I think we can make that statement without any, any uh, concern whatsoever. Vengeance after the fact is wrong. But, but what about things like war? Is war wrong for a Christian? 
Should a Christian fight in war? What about things like defending ourselves and our loved ones during an encounter with violence? Self-defense. Is that a right that applies to Christians, or should we throw up our hands and just not ever fight? I think Paul's words here indicate that while passivity is preferred, it's not always possible. I think that's what he's saying. While peace is the goal, sometimes it's out of our hands. And fighting may be our only option. I was walking the halls at the school, the college where I am employed, and I passed by, this has been several years ago, I passed by the office of the fellow who was at that time the chaplain, and on his door he had a sign that read in great big letters, All War is Sin. And I looked at that and I thought, hmm, apparently this chaplain hasn't read the Old Testament where God sent people to war multiple times. My Bible tells me God cannot sin. How can it be sin if God told people to do it? David one time thanked God for teaching his fingers, his hands to war. How could that be? And obviously this fellow had not read the book of Revelation where my King of kings and Lord of lords is coming back triumphantly to wipe out the enemies of God in the final battle. No, wars happen. Governments muster their people. They send them off to war. And if we as believers are forced to fight in such a conflict, I think that's one of those places. It doesn't depend on us. And it's right for us to go and to fight. To fight then is not wrong. There have also been far too many violent encounters in recent years where crazed gunmen come in and blow people away. We've seen it over and over and over again to where our eyes glaze everyone we see it now. Walk into a room filled with innocent bystanders and start shooting people. And I often read those, these stories and I, I think to myself, how would I respond? How would I respond personally? How would I respond as a pastor who's responsible for a group of people? What's the right response? Is laying down arms and surrendering to the evil the right response? Or is it right in such a case for a Christian to fight and defend self and others? You know, one mass shooting a while back took place in a megachurch out in uh, out west somewhere. You probably remember about this particular case. A guy walked into a church full of a bunch of innocent people and just opened fire and started shooting people. And there was a retired, not retired, a, an off-duty police woman there, armed, and she pulled out her pistol and killed the person. And, you know, so people have harangued back and forth and argued over that. Was she right? Was she wrong? What was the right thing to do? It's a huge topic, and it deserves a separate study, but I believe those, some of those are the scenarios, those are some of the scenarios that Paul had in mind when he said, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes the right response is for us to fight. John Walvert and Roy Zook in the Bible Knowledge Commentary said this. They said, harmony with others may not always be achievable, but believers should not be responsible for that lack of peace. In other words, we don't pick the fight. We don't start the fight. But if the fight happens, sometimes we have to be engaged. When my kids were young and they would come home with stories of bullies pushing them around at school, I always taught them the same thing. I always taught them that if it, is, if it was at all possible to walk away, Every time. Walking away is always the best thing if you can do it. I always taught them it was never right to start a fight. And I, I believe that to this day. I believe just walk away is the very first thing that we ought to teach our kids, the very first thing that we ought to try to do. It's the first response the Christian ought to have. But I also taught them if they couldn't avoid it and found themselves pulled into a conflict with no way out to finish it and finish it decisively. And I think that's right. I think it's right. Christians ought not start fights. 
But if a fight is thrust upon you, you don't have to take it lying down. We always walk away if a possibility exists. We never fight unless absolutely necessary. But if it is necessary, then it is not wrong to fight. You might disagree with me on that. But I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the right response when we are wrong is to strive for peace. If peace is at all possible, take that road. But then he says another thing. He says the right response also when we are wronged is to display kindness. Notice verse number 20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Responding with kindness when we are wronged is another thing that's taught all throughout the Bible. Everywhere we see it. Luke chapter 6, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Exodus chapter 23, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Proverbs chapter 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And, of course, that's the passage that's being quoted here. Some years back, a gunman walked into an Amish schoolhouse. I don't know if you remember this particular story. It's been a few years ago. Lined the children up against the wall and murdered them all. You remember that? The parents mourned. And then the parents publicly forgave and prayed for the murderer. And the world looked on, and they were stunned at that response. And, you know, we've seen that same scenario played out in so many other cases where a Christian is wronged, and rather than seek vengeance, they forgive and they pray for and they express kindness toward the one who committed the wrong. The world has no answer to that. Absolutely no answer to that. It's a testimony that shouts the reality of our faith. Stephen was the first martyr. In Christian history, you can read his story in Acts chapter 7, and I encourage you to do so if you never have. Stephen was dragged before the authorities, and he was stoned to death. And as he lay there dying, he forgave his tormentors. Acts chapter 7 and verse number 60, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What an amazing testimony. I mean, think about it. What an amazing testimony of forgiveness and responding with kindness. And you know what I love the most about the story? The thing that I love the most about the story is the next two words. The next two words that start chapter 8. You know what those next two words are? Acts chapter 8, verse number 1. Now, Saul. You see, Saul was there. And Saul was listening. And Saul was watching this whole thing. And he watched as Stephen responded in the way that he did. And, you know, one of these days we're going to get to heaven. And we're going to get to talk to Saul, to Saul who became Paul, the Apostle Paul. And it's going to be amazing the things we can talk about. You know, one of the things I want to ask him is, what did you think when you heard that? What, what, what were you thinking as you walked down the Damascus Road then after that? And that was playing over in your mind over and over and over again. I, I don't know that the conversion or the uh, forgiveness of Stephen and all of that uh, was a direct cause of Saul getting saved. But I know it was part of it. I know it was a testimony. Stephen responding with kindness and forgiveness was at least partly responsible for the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Well, so what have we learned concerning how Christians should respond when wrong? Number one, there's a wrong response when we are wronged, and that is vengeance. It's always wrong. Can we agree with that? Always wrong. Vengeance. Number two, there is a promised response when we are wronged. God will avenge. God promises to fight our battles. God promises to make everything right. And number three, there is a right response when we are wronged. We should, first of all, strive for peace, and we should always respond with kindness. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I, 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 I'm almost certain what some of you are thinking, and that is, Pastor, you're crazy. It's not possible. I can't live that. And I confess to you that I'm not sure I can live that. It certainly flies against our human nature, does it not? If we're saying to ourselves, this is difficult and I need to pray about it and it's something I need to work on, that's one thing. But if we're sitting there saying to ourselves, that's not me and I can't do that. I refuse to do that. I'm not going to be that way. Somebody gets in my face, I'm going to get right back in theirs. Well, then I have to say one of two things is probably true of you. Number one, you may not be saved. You may not be saved. The fact is we can't, any of us do this if it wasn't for verse number one of chapter 12. Because of the mercies of God. Because of the resources that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the only way it's even remotely possible for us to live this way. So if you're sitting there saying it is just simply impossible and you have no willingness whatsoever to do it, it may be a sign that you've never trusted Christ. And so I encourage you to think about that today. Have you? Have you trusted Christ? Do you know for certain if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved? Because without that, this is, this is irrelevant. That's the first step. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is this. If you're sitting there as a Christian, you know you're saved. But you're still sitting there saying, nah, that's not me. Somebody gives me trouble, I'm going to get in their face. Somebody does me wrong, I'm going to chase them to the ends of the earth and, and avenge myself upon them. If that's you, then there's another possibility. Here it is. This is not a possibility. This is a fact. You need to repent. Because as much as we don't like to think about it, these are not optional things. These are not suggestions. This is the way a Christian is to live. This is what we are, how we are to respond. And so I would suggest today as we go to our invitation, as we wrap up our service, that you might want to think about those two possible responses to this passage. Some today might need to say, you know what, maybe it's an indication that I've never trusted Christ and you need to deal with that. As we sang, we'd love to take the Bible and show you. Step out. Come to the front. Somebody will take you aside quietly, show you from Scripture how you can be saved. Uh, Christian, if you're here today and you're saying that this, is, this really flies against me, uh, maybe you need to come and say, Lord, help me. I need to repent of this sin. And I need to learn to do right when the people do me wrong. So think about those things as we pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. And Lord, I confess with all of my heart that this is a difficult passage for me personally to live out. Lord, I have a temper. I react uh, just like a lot of other people with the desire to retaliate when someone does wrong. And I know that's sin. And so, Lord, I confess it and pray you'd help me to live these verses. And I pray, Lord, for every other person in this room today. First of all, Lord, for, for those who maybe if they examine this and apply it to their life, maybe they come to the conclusion they've never trusted Christ. And that's one of the reasons they struggle to live it. And so, Lord, help them. Help them to turn to Christ today. But there may be others who would say, yes, I'm, I'm a believer, but this is an area of concern, and it is an area where I need to confess. It is an area where I need to repent. Help me, Lord God, to do right even when people do me wrong. 
So help us, Lord, whatever decisions need to be made. I know some have discussed uh, church membership today, and so I pray if that's their desire, they'll step out during the invitation. And I know there may be other needs amongst people. Maybe they just need to come and pray, uh, whatever the need be. Help us, Lord, to make decisions, to do right, and uh, to do business with you as we close our service with this song. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.